This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here is your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Morton Hansen is a management professor at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also a faculty member at Apple University. He has a Ph.D. from Stanford Business School, where he was a Fulbright Scholar. His academic research has won several prestigious awards, and he is ranked among the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. He was also a manager at the Boston Consulting Group, where he advised corporate clients worldwide. He's written a number of important books, including Great by Choice and Collaboration. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about the practical ideas gleaned from his excellent research on enhancing performance described in his really important new book, and that is Great at Work, How Top Performers Work Less and Achieve More. So, get set to listen and learn from Morton Hansen. Morton Hansen, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, it's great to have you here. It really is. So, um, I, I want to dive right into your, your study, which has debunked uh, some myths about work and the rest of life especially, but other aspects of work. And I want to explore some of the major findings and implications for action. But first, just a little bit about the study itself, because it really is quite uh, impressive what you've done. And it really gives heft, I think, to the implications you've drawn from it. What was the motivation for it? And in brief, how'd you do it? Yeah, I mean, one motivation was personal. When I started working uh, at the Boston Consulting Group, I did what most people do when they are young, inexperienced, and really want to achieve. Uh, they work crazy hours. They put in mm-hmm. a lot of effort. And I realized I was able to do good work, but I saw some colleagues not doing that, working less in many ways, and doing better. And it always puzzled me, what did they do? What did Natalie do? Exactly. I, a colleague I call Natalie in the book, mm-hmm. what did Natalie do? She was an incredible performer, uh, yet she did not work the hours that I did. And uh, I never found it out. Hmm. It puzzled me. It always kept, you know, bothering me. Mm-hmm. And then many years later, as an academic, I, I looked around and I said, well, there's got to be a lot of advice out there for how to work smarter, not harder. But what I found was an incredible uh, number of uh, pieces of advice, very fragmented, uh, often not evident. So I decided, well, I'm going to do a study, an academic study, and put it to a test. And we start off with a set of hypotheses because going to the academic literature and going to what people have said before, and then uh, to my surprise or, or, or the findings show that many of them were wrong or incomplete. And so um, we did a 300-person pilot study first, and we mm-hmm. did 50 interviews to kind of learn. And then we revised our hypothesis, and we did a survey instrument that we then uh, tested with 5,000 people, 
across corporate America. So these are senior managers, uh, junior people in different industries, uh, financial services, consumer goods, retail, and so on, because I wanted an, an evidence-based finding that could apply to many different jobs. And you also That's have evidence and, and, and anecdotal and otherwise from people in other settings than the corporate world, too. Yeah, so we wanted to um, have practical advice and we did uh, 120 interviews or case studies where we could deep dive and see what did these people do, either because they got it wrong or they got it right. So the f- book is full of practical advice because yes, it, it, it made it just a, a piece of uh, you know data analysis. And it's so well written and so easily uh, grasped by, uh, I could see, a wide readership. You've really done a brilliant job with it. Uh, and I commend you for that effort. What was most surprising to you in the data? What was the thing that really struck you as especially counterintuitive or, or contrary to what you had gathered in your survey of the literature? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question. And what we, um, I think there's a convention out there, which I call the do more paradigm. And that is that in order to succeed, we want to do more, more tasks, more assignments, uh, more hours, uh, more uh, objectives. Uh, and, and the belief is that the more we accomplish that way, the better we will perform. And certainly that's the way I approach my own job at DCG, and many mm-hmm. others do. Millions of people around the world do that. Mm-hmm. And Especially young put, people, right, as yeah, you were pointing out? Yeah, and um, I want to put that to the test. And, and if it was true, well, that, that is the truth, right? I was looking for the truth, uh, not a particular bias. And what came back was really overwhelmingly that that's not what most top performers do. They do less. They are very selective mm-hmm. in what they choose to work on. Mm-hmm. And then they apply targeted, intense effort to excel in those fewer things. So rather than pile on, they cut back. Rather than saying yes to everything, they say no. Rather than just keep chasing more and more, they actually uh, do less. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that's a big surprise. And uh, and it has all sorts of implications for how we approach our work. I mean, you said it at the opening of the show. Uh, you know, instead of saying, how many meetings can I go to in a, full, in, in a week? You know, how, how, many, how few meetings can I go to and still excel? How many tasks do I need to uh, take on and can I accomplish in a day? Um, and ask instead, how, how few can I do? And mm-hmm. it's a contrarian view. Uh, to performance, and um, it's kind of what the, what the evidence shows, and, and so we need to change how we work. Well, it's also, when you think about it, really, uh, kind of intuitive that to be focused on the things that you're good at, where you're creating value, mm-hmm. uh, where you're having uh, an impact that, that, that speaks to your, 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 your sense of purpose, um, you know that requires you to say no, but l- let me just drill down into a couple of the assumptions or um, key underlying ideas in the 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 do less um, imperative, which I think is so important uh, for for you to get out there, and I'm so glad that you're bringing it to us. And that is first selective effort. So, what did you discover, and what can you share with our listeners about how to make such selections? intelligently as yeah. to what it is that you indeed focus on. Yeah. So 
uh, first of all, I want to just give an example of a, of a case study that where you see a person actually making a change and, and, and performing better. And it's uh, Susan Bishop, who is a, uh, a founder of her firm and a boutique executive search firm in New York. And when she set out and started her business, she did what most uh, founders and small business people do. Uh, you go out and try to do whatever's humanly possible to satisfy your clients. She started out in the media business. That's where she had her expertise. Mm-hmm. And helping media companies with searches for new managers and executives. In the beginning, she was quite successful. Um, they gave her more work. But so did other companies. Uh, Coca-Cola, uh, consumer goods, uh, financial services, and, and, sh- and lower level searches in different geographies, right? And Sounds great. She's great. getting a lot of business. It's called expansion. We're mm-hmm. growing here. What's mm-hmm. wrong with this? Yeah. But that was also the trap, mm. what I call the spread to thin trap. Mm-hmm. Now you are in segments where you don't have the expertise. You don't have the databases for searches. You have to build up. Your costs are going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, your profit margins are going down. Uh, your quality of work suffers. So you're spreading yourself thin across geography and clients groups. And as a result her results started to suffer. Not to mention, as she reported to me, uh, her, her stress level, her work-life balance was out of the window. I mean, there was, this was just horrible, she said. I felt like pulling in 100 different directions at once. Mm-hmm. And we often work like that. And then she had an epiphany, and that was, I need to change this completely around. And she did something brilliant. She set rules for herself. She said what? Rules. Rules, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe a strategy, you could say. Mm-hmm. And it was only media firms, only senior surface searches defined as uh, $50,000 per search, only in certain geographies, uh, only if the client will pay market rate, stay away from difficult clients. No discounts. So Sorry? No discounts. And no discounts, exactly, yeah. So, no, that was hard at first, mm-hmm. and she communicated that to her team, so she made it public, so she couldn't just go back on it, and she was put to a test, because Coca-Cola called her and said, hey, we've got a great search for you, $500,000 for one engagement. Yikes. How do you turn that down? And she said, she went to the office, and there were two executives from Coca-Cola there, and she said, you know, uh, my knees were knocking again, she said, my palms were, I was sweating. And I was able to say, no, it's not in media. If you have some media searches for me, I'm okay, but I cannot take those. And that's a tough, that's saying no to a client. And you are a small business owner. You have bills to pay. Mm-hmm. You have payroll to make. But she understood that if she kept going down that path of saying yes to everything, she would ruin her business and her life. Mm-hmm. And she pulled back. And then... Over the next few months and next year, she started getting more media searches. She did them extremely well because that was the one thing she could now focus mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. And her business turned around and she and profits and sales really climbed up to the best levels ever. So, 
do less than upset. At tying yourself to the mast like Odysseus with the sirens sweetly singing from the shore. Having Uh, those rules. That's a great metaphor that you use um, in in the chapter describing her her amazing story. So where do you find, as as you're going around the world talking to people about this, where do you find the most resistance to that idea? On what do people push back when when they hear you say that? Most people believe that they have to say yes mm-hmm. to their boss, to their customers, and if they don't, they're going to suffer the consequences. And, and, and that's the belief. Um, so, for example, saying no to your boss. Yes. I know, uh, I know there are many people listening right now thinking, yeah. I could never say no to my boss. Exactly. What's he talking about? So, yeah. so exactly. what did you learn about the high performers, about how they do that, that you can advise exactly. our listeners? So I believe that one of the most important professional skills today in today's hectic workplace is to say no. Because this principle of performance that you know, we talk about here that we have evidence for is the idea of focusing, right? Mm-hmm. Doing fewer things and obsessing over fewer things. Now, that also means that you have to say no. It goes with focusing. Of you course. cannot focus in your life if you say yes to everything. I mean, that's outside of life. If you say yes to every, everything in life, you are going to be completely unfocused. You're going I to know. Defense. You know, when I was younger, I used to think I could do everything. Yeah, and then you, and <laughs> I, then you find out I bet out you felt that way too, Morton. Right? <laughs> Say again, sorry? You find out through experience that you cannot. You, life isn't like that. Yeah, and, and so, but what happens um, if you say yes to everything mm-hmm. and everything your boss asks you to do is it inevitably, you, it will come back to hurt you mm-hmm. because you will not be able to do excellent work. Say you're working on two projects. Your boss comes and says, okay, can you take on another customer project? You say yes. Now you're doing three. You're spread too thin. Quality of work is going to suffer. Your boss might come and say, wait a minute, that presentation you gave wasn't as sharp as it should have been. Mm-hmm. You're not prepared well enough in the meetings because you didn't have the time. Your customers are calling you and you're not responding well enough mm-hmm. and so on. So now... It matters how you say no. So if your boss comes to you and say, hey, can you take on an additional project, and, and your plate is already full, then one way to push back is to say, I'm already doing this too, and it requires my full attention to do excellent work. What should I prioritize? Mm-hmm. What should I complete first? Now you're putting the burden back on the boss, and that is fear, because the job of a manager is to prioritize sure. work. No, I love it when people who work for me say say to me that very question, which yeah. is which is more important. And it's it's always pretty easy to figure that out. I mean, sometimes it's not, but it usually is a, a, a pretty quick decision. And and most bosses appreciate that when yeah. you, when you give it to them. And and I want to and I want to underscore one thing here. Mm-hmm. This is in uh, your boss' uh, interest. So all the managers right. listening. This is in your interest that you prioritize work and they push back on you when you give them too much because they will perform better. Mm-hmm. And if you have team members that perform better, your, they will roll up to your performance. So managers will perform better if they are better able to prioritize for the staff and if they're able to take that feedback from the staff that is asking the boss to prioritize. Well, plus more people are going to want to work for you because you're seen as a as a humane and intelligent manager, and you're helping them to live uh, rich and uh, fruitful lives as well as well as to perform on on the things that matter most. And I want to move to one of the other important insights uh, for action that come out of your research, and that is 
about uh, the notion of pursuing your passion. What did you discover about that, Morton? Yeah, you know, uh, if you go to any commencement speech in any university, yours or mine or any other one, probably there will be somebody on the podium and they will tell the crowd, the graduating students, follow your passion. Do what you love. Love. Find what you love and do that. You're, you're not telling people not to do that, are you, Professor? Uh, <laughs> well, the problem with that statement yes. is that what it really means to follow your passion is to let passion dictate what you should choose mm. in terms of activities, jobs, and careers. Mm-hmm. By definition, without other considerations. What we found is that the top performers approach this differently. They first ask a question around purpose. What can I contribute? Hmm. Now, passion and purpose are actually very different concepts. Explain. Passion is about what excites me, what gives me energy, what the world can give me. And it's almost a hedonistic quality if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Purpose, it is what I can contribute to my company, to the world, to society, to my customers. It is what I can give the world. So now, ideally, you would like to have a job where you have both. Mm -hmm. Work is infused with passion. That's something that excites you when you go to work. And where you have a strong sense of purpose, that what you are contributing is is meaningful. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that people who have both, I call them P-squared, you got both in your job, they perform better. Much better. It's a, it's so, a nice, but, but if you only simple do passion, way. This is the point. If you only yeah. do passion, you may not find that purpose because you're not mm-hmm. asking those questions. What do I contribute? Mm-hmm. You're just going down the path of think, doing something you, you like. That's something you are excited about. Mm-hmm. So I always tell my students, you know, before you go for the passion question, go for the purpose question. What can you do to provide really great contributions that you, you are uniquely suited to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once mm-hmm. you answer that then find something where you also have passion. So you think the purpose question is primary? I think so, yes. And I think that's what we see in the study. So, uh, so the, the beauty of having 5,000 people is that we have people in, in, in the study set that have high passion, low purpose, high purpose, low passion, or they have both. And the real kicker is purpose. Passion and purpose both matter, but purpose matters more. Hmm. It matters more in terms, in terms of, of driving performance. Hmm. And, and so you might ask the question, why, why does this drive performance? Well, so what we found from our statistical analysis that people with both passion and purpose, they, it's not that they work more hours, because that could have been an, an explanation, right? I'm so passionate about what I do, so I just put in 70 hours, I don't go home at night. Mm-hmm. It's not what is happening, by and large. What is happening is that they apply more energy per hour worked. Hmm. But that makes sense, right? Because if you have really excited about what you do and you feel it's very important, then you are more dedicated. You are more concentrated. You pay attention to detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are in flow, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you are totally unexcited and you think your job is totally meaningless, you're just going on the internet and looking at your text messages, so, <laughs> right? So, so, do you does what what advice specifically do you have for people who uh, are infused with passion but cannot link it with uh, a purpose that is of value to the world? Right. So you um, where we find many people. Yeah, exactly. So um, 
the way I think about purpose, uh, and I detail this in the book, is sort of a ladder. I call it purpose pyramid. It's got three things that you need to look for. Mm-hmm. One is, are you contributing value? Are you creating value in, in, in your work? Mm-hmm. And, and that could be to your customers or to companies. Because if we define purpose as do what contributes, mm-hmm. then value, meaning benef- that people benefit from your work output is a one way of thinking about purpose. It's sort of the foundational piece. And we often think of uh, purpose only having to do something with noble missions, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. If you work in a company and, and your customers are really dependent and value what you create for them, then you are having purpose at that level. Mm-hmm. And then you need to move up to the second level, which is doing something of value that is meaningful to you. And that could be different from person to person. Of course, has right? to be. Mm-hmm. It has to be subjective at that stage. Mm-hmm. And then at the very highest level, the third level, is sort of what is a, a, a contribution to society beyond making money for your company. Mm-hmm. And that's always what we think about as purpose, those noble uh, missions. But that's only one layer of purpose. So my first advice to people uh, is go and look at your job and say, what, what is that you, uh, what kind of value do you produce? Are, are people really val- valuing your output? And what we found in research, which is uh, pretty amazing, lots of people produce lots of things of little value. How do, how do they know that? And how does one, what, what's your best advice for how one could discover whether or not indeed their output has value? Yeah, so this gets to this um, other part of the, of the book, but it's an important finding, which is, the way I define value is that the benefit uh, of the work that you produce, and it's kind of benefits to others. And let me just illustrate with a quick example to illustrate mm-hmm. this subtle mm-hmm. but important point. Uh, we came across this guy who was running a logistics function in a warehouse, and his job was to ship this industrial product out of the warehouse to the customers. He was tracking one key performance metric, which was the number of times the shipments left his warehouse on time. Makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. He was measured on that. That was the boss has set as the objective. And he hit that and impressed it 99% of the time. Then they surveyed the customers. And the customers complain that only 90, 65% of the shipments arrived when they needed the product. Mm-hmm. In other words, a third of them were too late. Mm-hmm. But he was not tracking that. He was tracking when they left his warehouse, mm-hmm. when the trucks were going out not when the customer needed it. And that's the difference between tracking an internal metric and a value metric for your customer. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you, you got to get the right data. Yeah, so we have so many wrong metrics. Mm-hmm. So you could argue he didn't create much value after all, this guy. He probably thought he was doing an incredible job. So, so how, does, how does one find that out for oneself? Right, so I think the, the first thing you have to ask in your job is... Um, what value are you creating for the beneficiaries of my job, mm-hmm. for your customers, uh, for, or for internally, if you are a human resource person, for example, mm-hmm. and, and ask that question. What, and then to find that out, you might go and ask them or find out what is it they value or the things that I actually create. So, so by doing that analysis and, and, and candid discovery about yeah. purpose and, and passion, you're likely to be smarter about what to select. We only have a few yeah. more minutes, and I want to get to obsession. So tell us about why do less is part of the equation and obsess is the other part. 
Yeah, so I think we got the whole idea of focusing wrong. We think about focusing in terms of choice, that we should choose a set of priorities. And in our data, that's just one half of the strategy. Mm -hmm. The other one is that you also must obsess. Going all in, paying attention to all the details, going the extra mile, uh, making every possible effort to do excellent work, prepare extremely well for every presentation, for every meeting. And that kind of obsession you can only do if you're doing a few things. Mm -hmm. So what we found, and this is an important thing, if you want to be a top performer, it is not enough to focus just to choose a set of priorities. You also must obsess over those few things. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you have no advantage over colleagues and competitors who are actually doing more things. Because after all, they're getting more stuff done, right? Mm -hmm. But you are not. So you need, your work needs to be so much better. And that's the obsession part. And I chose that word deliberately. It's, it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. Right. And, and I know that I personally have been, you know, abused by people who think you're being too obsessive about yeah. the details on this. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah. but it has to be great. Exactly. <laughs> that, 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 that devotion to detail, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. is a sign of obsessing, right? Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have any uh, typos in your presentation. <laughs> so example. how do you deal with those colleagues who say, you know, it's good enough, Stu, let it go? Yeah, it, it, it's good enough is, is good enough, but it's not great at work. Mm. Mm. All right. So I have about a thousand more questions for you, Morton, but unfortunately we don't have time for all of them. But let me ask you two more really quickly. Mm. One is, um, what does all of this have to do with having a life that is rich, full, and as most people say, balanced, but I would yeah. say as in harmony. Yeah. So, you know, this is right into your area of expertise, Stu, but I ask a final question. Okay, so if people are answering these seven work uh, practices that create great performance, what does their life look, look, look like? Mm -hmm. and, and so I have the final chapter in the book is addressing that question. So we ask three questions around uh, work-life balance, job satisfaction, and burnout. Mm -hmm. And by and large, the people who master these practices are reporting better conditions on those three. Mm -hmm. And there are a few caveats there. I mean, if you're obsessed so much that you don't think about anything but work, you're mm -hmm. going too far on the obsession. You need to hold back a little bit. Mm -hmm. But beyond those caveats, um, it, our findings suggest you can be a great performer in your career, in your job, and you could have a life at the same time, a rich life on the outside. It is possible to have both. I know this is your area of expertise. You know much more about this than I do. Well, you're but adding to my knowledge data. base, yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah. But I'm sorry, finish your thought. No, that is what our data, that's the evidence yeah. in our data. That's, I, I am finding the same thing in yeah. my 30 years of uh, work and practice in this field that, right. you know, through other means, discovering uh, that essential truth, that selective attention to the things that right. matter to you and, and to others helps you to have a sense of uh, calm, really, um, you know, in the face of all the, uh, all the intense pressures that we all face. Last question for you. Um, how, I, I've been asking all my guests this question in 2018 uh, because it's something that I think is important for all of us to think about, and that is compassion. How does compassion, the idea of compassion, fit into your work and your life? How does it play out for you? So, you know, um, to me, uh, the reason I did this study, the reason I'm doing this kind of work is that I really want people to work better and have a better life. 
and to help millions of people around the world to do that. That is kind of my mission. And I care for those people who are um, ruining their work and ruining their life. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we work in so many wrong ways today, and we got to fix that. And that, to me, is so important. Well, you have made a substantial and significant contribution toward that uh, purpose with passion, Morton Hansen, and I'm really grateful to you for doing that work and for sharing it with, uh, with our, our listeners. Yes, so how, how can people find out more about, uh, about your great work? Yeah, the best place is to go to my website, which is www.mortenhansen.com. That's M-O-R-T-E-N-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. And there we have some additional resources. We also have a quiz that if you want to see how you stack up against the seven principles, mm-hmm. you can take it. It's a reduced version of the big survey instrument, but it doesn't take you more than five, ten minutes. And we uh, give you a comparative score to, to the uh, big data set. Cool. And I'm sure that, that sparks uh, further inquiry and interest in, in how one can learn uh, the, the principles and practices that you describe so well in Great at Work. Thanks again, Morton. Really appreciate your being a part of the show tonight. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Morton Hansen about his really important study about what makes great performers great and especially how they seem to be able to do more with less. And there are some very particular practices that they follow that enable them to excel while doing less, including and especially obsessing on the details of the things that they care most about and that contribute value, passion and purpose. So here's, here's an invitation for you, a challenge that you might want to try. And that is to think about what you do and see if you can find something in the repertoire of your daily activity that isn't both purposeful, that is creating value for others, and something you feel passionate about, strongly about, you care a lot about it. So is there something that you do that is neither filled with passion nor creates real value for other people? There probably are a few things like that. And if you can find one, here is the invitation for you. Try to either reduce the amount of time and effort you put into that activity or maybe just as a trial for a week or two, eliminate it. Just don't do it. See what happens. What do you discover? What do you learn about your capacity for really honing in on the things that matter most to you and to the people around you? What do you What do you learn? I would love to hear from you about that. You can write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. And if you've got ideas about people you'd like to hear about or from on the show in conversation with me, send me those ideas as well. I've gotten some great suggestions from people. So join the chorus. I'd love to hear from you as to who you think would be interesting to to learn about and to draw wisdom from. 
in this conversation here on Work and Life. Again, it's friedmanatwharton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.